You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to this inaugural edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you from the sunny climes of western Japan on this first day of June, 2007. Yes, that uh, cringeworthy piece of audio juvenilia, as I'm sure some of you in the audience will be able to identify, was indeed the first ever episode of this podcast and the first ever piece of corporate report media ever unleashed upon the world. Now, nearly seven and a half years ago, if you can believe it. In fact, over seven and a half years ago, way back in June of 2007. Here we are in January of 2015, January 23rd, to be very precise. And here I still am, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, still coming to you from the sunny climes of Western Japan. And yes, as you can tell, I am suitably embarrassed by the by that audio uh, for a number of reasons. Of course, not only the technical audio quality, or more specifically, the lack thereof of that clip, but also my lack of ability as a podcaster at that time to talk in front of a microphone. In my defense, it was my first time ever really talking in front of a microphone and being a uh, podcasting host or a media producer, so obviously it's been a learning process along the way, but here we are now in episode 300 of the Corbett Report podcast, something that would have been mind-boggling to even contemplate back when I launched this humble media venture, again, nearly seven and a half years ago. And as I hope you can tell, we certainly have progressed from that point, haven't we? We now have a podcast, which is not just myself. It is now a community of users at CorbettReport.com contributing to an open source investigation, which I like to think is helping to expand the limits of our knowledge of, well, economic and political and scientific and historical and other types of uh, inquiries, and it is certainly still a work in progress, but it is definitely progressing, we'll put it that way. And I very much am pleased with that, and even though, yes, I do still cringe at my early episodes or my early attempts at podcasting and never ever recommend to new listeners to The Corbett Report to go back and start listening from episode one, because I don't think that will be particularly valuable, although there are still, I think, valuable pieces of information in those early episodes. But at any rate, this has all been a process, and as I have grown and learned and adjusted what I'm doing, I hope that the audience out there has done so as well, has also grown with this podcast. Of course, that might be a bit presumptuous on my part, but why are we here today for episode 300 of the podcast talking about the podcast. Well, I don't generally reflect on these round number types of uh, occasions, but here we are at a nice round number 300, and why don't we use that as a signpost in the road to get us to a stage of reflection? Because it is important for us, all of us, in whatever walk of life we may be on, to, to step back and to contemplate and reflect on what it is we are doing and why we are doing it. How did we get 
here in the first place? What did we do in the past? What are we doing now? What will we do in the future? And so this is my attempt to articulate that for myself with the Corbett Report podcast and what I hope to accomplish in the future. But as I say, we can't possibly know what we want to do in the future without understanding where it is we're coming from or what it is we're doing at the present time. So let's take a moment to step back and to take a look at some of this thousands and thousands of hours of media that has now accrued there completely free and open to the public as it has always been at CorbettReport.com. And I certainly hope that you will use Corbett Report as the resource that it is intended as. But at this moment, let's take a moment to to put this into uh, a, a context that we can actually grasp by framing today's podcast with a question. What is the value of this work? What value does the Corbett Report add to the general societal conversation, the alternative media, media generally. Um, and, and to answer that question, I think it's important to understand that from the perspective of today, when you look back at the best episodes of the Corbett Report podcast or the best interviews or videos or articles that I've created in the past, the ones that stand out are not the ones that are talking about specific aspects of specific news stories, the news of the hour, the news of the the minute that uh, is covered breathlessly in a lot of other places online. Uh, Although there is some of that that goes on, perhaps most notably in the New World Next Week series, which does attempt to look at some of the latest news in the world and and sort of encapsulate the news of the week. And I think there is a value to that. But I think the overall value, the lasting value of the media at CorbettReport.com is not the scrutiny, the endless scrutiny of individual details of this, these uh, ongoing news events. It's the bigger picture, because there is a bigger picture, which I have been attempting to articulate now for seven and a half years, and will, with your support, hopefully continue to articulate for for a long time to come, because it is such a grand narrative that we are trying to place these individual news events within in order to contextualize and understand them, that it is almost mind-boggling to try to think about this narrative in all of its vast complexity and interworking parts. And there are different aspects to this, but I think ultimately it is the story of the New World Order, dare I raise the specter of that term, which we talked about recently here on a recent Questions for Corbett. But I think that is one way of looking at what this narrative is. And and put quite simply, this is the quest for the consolidation of oligarchical control, i.e. the rule of the many by the few. And I think the New World Order quest or dream is the final consolidation, the the ultimate revolution, as Aldous Huxley uh, put it once, uh, to 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 fully consolidate that power and control in an immutable system, a system that will never effectively be opposed. And there are many different aspects to this agenda. Again, it's it's overwhelming. It's in its complexity and in its intricacy. It affects every aspect of everything we do in our daily lives. It includes the central banking agenda and the manipulation of our economic reality. It includes false flag terrorism and the uh, the strategy of tension as a way of manipulating our geopolitical reality. It involves eugenics and the depopulation agenda, which ties into the scientific dictatorship. Uh, term that I did not coin myself, a term that was coined again by Aldous Huxley, which is a name that you should be familiar with, as he is not only an author, but also someone whose family lineage goes back into the the real heart of the British scientific establishment, and perhaps more importantly, the history of eugenics. 
Again, there are so many different pieces to this puzzle, so let's just take a moment to to step back and to look at a previous episode of this podcast that was released way back in February 2008. Now, almost seven years ago, so um, just about seven years ago, The Scientific Dictatorship was the title of episode 34 of this podcast, where we examined, amongst other things, a work that recently came up in my conversation that I held just earlier this week with Richard Grove of TragedyAndHope.com for the Film Literature and New World Order podcast on Philip Drew Administrator, where we mentioned H.G. Wells and a work that he wrote back in the early 1930s called The Shape of Things to Come that was... uh, Uh, developed into a movie called Things to Come. Now, back in episode 34 of this podcast, we looked at that, uh, a clip of that movie, and examined how the scientific dictatorship was something that H.G. Wells was talking about, arguing for, preparing the public for in numerous ways, not only through his works of fiction, but perhaps even more importantly, through his non-fiction. This man, why isn't he brought here? He's got up, Dr. Hardy. He has to be brought here. I must deal with him. Yeah, you can't go to him. That's impossible. He must come to you. Well, send another man for him. Send three men. He's got to be brought here. So that's the sort of man your boss is. Not an unusual type. Everywhere we find these little semi-military upstarts robbing and fighting. That's what endless warfare has led to. Brigandage. What else could happen? But we, who are all that are left of the old engineers and mechanics, have pledged ourselves to salvage the world. We have the airways, all that's left of them. We have the seas. And we have ideas in common. The brotherhood of efficiency. The Freemasonry of science. We're the last trustees of civilization when everything else has failed. I've been waiting for this. I'm yours to command. Not mine. Not mine. No more bosses. Civilization's to command. And it's in that vein that we move on to some of H.G. Wells' other nonfiction works, including A Declaration of the Rights of Man, which was prepared under the chairmanship of Lord Sankey of Britain and drafted in 1940 by H.G. Wells. This is an important document because it was later adopted in large part by the United Nations in their Declaration of Human Rights and Freedoms. Some of the wonderful ideas that H.G. Wells presents for his world government in this Declaration of the Rights of Man is that the world government would have the right to take away children from their parents should the world government deem those parents unfit to rear their children for any reason. Another wonderful idea promulgated by Wells is that everyone has a duty to the community and the world government can enforce a quota of service to the community by every man, woman, and child. Again, this is the basis for the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights and Freedoms, and thus the basis of the UN as we know it today. Mm, Still difficult for me to listen to audio like that. But uh, there you go. That was the Corbett Report podcast, again, seven years ago, talking about one aspect of this overarching agenda, the bigger, bigger picture of this 
new world order system that we're attempting to articulate. And that's one example of the type of media that I've been creating here for the past seven and a half years, which is this media trying to look at various pieces of this big picture. There's also, of course, just as there is the grander scope of this narrative, as I say, there are very intricate, fine-grained details of each moving part of each one of the aspects of each system that plays into each part of the agenda that makes the bigger picture. So, as I hope that analogy makes clear, there is a very fine-grained detail that is possible to look into as well, and to some extent, that's also a task that we're engaged in at the Corbett Report and that I have been attempting to do for the past several years. For example, taking a look at one aspect of one think tank, which has been influential in the shaping of the 20th century and continues to be in the 21st century, namely the Rand Corporation. And it was my great pleasure and honor back in 2011 to not only produce an episode of the podcast talking about the Rand Corporation, titled The Rand Corporation Exposed, episode 175, but also for, in preparation for that podcast, to interview the man who wrote the book on the Rand Corporation, Alex Abea, who wrote Soldiers of Reason, The Rand Corporation, and The Rise of the American Empire. And in interview 287 of this podcast, again, available at CorbettReport.com, all the links for these individual uh, uh, things that I cite today will be in the show notes, but you can always, of course, just look for them on CorbettReport.com. In that conversation, we talk about military planning, systems analysis, nuclear weapons deployment, rational choice theory, and how we are all, as Alex puts it in the interview, the bastard children of Rand, whether we know it or not, which is an interesting and intriguing statement. So we did talk about the development of the Rand Corporation and what it means that we are its bastard children. Well, you, you raise a very intriguing and important point there, because if, if it all does boil down to us as individuals defined as consumers, just given a, a bunch of choices and those choices being predefined and pre-limited for us so that uh, society can be shaped in a certain direction, then what does that say about the Rand Corporation itself, which is really, really on the surface only presenting uh, case studies or, or looking into certain possibilities, but simply by looking into certain possibilities, aren't they in a way shaping the course of society? Not only that, my friend, you first have to remember that he who frames the argument has already won half of it. If you shape the question, you can, to a very large degree, influence the answer, because it will be the answer to the question that you pose. So therefore, just by making a particular deliberate choice of the arguments that are to be taken into consideration, you're already framing the answer, A. But B... It goes beyond that because, for instance, that's what the Brookings Institution does. The Brookings Institution is another think tank that was that, that, that was founded in the 1920s. Never, never, never did have as much influence as Rand, and it's only been now in, under the Obama administration that they finally found their own voice, and a lot of the people have gone into the Obama administration, whereas for, you know, for decades before it was Rand, you know, like Donald Rumsfeld going from the, bar, the Rand Board of Trustees to, to head the Pentagon. But be that as it may, one of Rand's tenets is that they no longer, they don't only they not only uh, frame the question and tell you what is the right question to ask of any one particular problem, and many, many Iran scientists and researcher uh, and uh, executive has, 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 
come up to me and, you know, stated quite proudly that, uh, you know, they are notorious for that, that a client may come to them with a particular problem and they say, well, this is what we want the answer to. And they would say, no, 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 you're looking at the wrong set of facts. This is the question that you should ask and this is the answer that you should, that you should hear. Be that as it may. Not only do they do that, they also then go out of the way to make sure that the policy makers in the U.S. government get that information. And that is the crux of the matter and the heart of their responsibility. A responsibility which today, to this date, they deny any part of. What do I mean by that? I mean that, the, um, for instance, let us look at Vietnam, in which they came up with something called the Viet Cong Study, in which they they saw how the Viet Cong in reality were not driven by um, selfish motives, but actually were idealistic actors uh, who were really wanted to just wanted just the best for the family and for the country. They submitted that, but then when it was denied, when the, the, the Johnson administration decided not to pay attention to it, then they turned around and then just started feeding other arguments such as, well, bombing the Viet Cong then would actually be good because then that, even if it kills the villagers, then the villagers will not turn against the U.S., but will turn against the Viet Cong for having provoked the bombing that wiped their villages. That kind of contorted uh, Byzantine logic that was exactly what the administration wanted to hear. My point being is that they come up with, the, they frame the question, they give you an answer that perhaps you hadn't even thought of, and then they make sure that the people who can implement that particular policy listen to it and, and put it into effect. Some, dub, some dub, doubly responsible. Not only that, what you have to also bear in mind is that RAN is the birthplace of what today is called the military-industrial complex. It comes out directly out of people in RAN and affiliated with RAN in the late 1950s. Now, once again, that is just one example of one of the examinations of one of the fine details in one of the systems that is one part of the overarching narrative that makes up one piece of this overall picture of the New World Order. So, again, there's no way to accurately represent all of the individual pieces that we've looked at over the years, but this is just one representative example of that, and one that I think is worth listening to. So, of course, you can go and download Interview 287, as I say, freely from CorbettReport.com. I should also mention at this point that as that interview was conducted in 2011, it will be uh, a part of my brand new, just now available, Corbett Report Data DVD Volume 4. And for those of you who don't know about the Data DVD series, basically these are data DVDs that you put into your DVD-ROM drive, i.e. your computer, not just a regular DVD player, and that contains every single podcast episode, interview, article, and video from whatever year we're talking about. In this case, 2011 is the brand newest edition. And they contain, for example, interviews like that one with Alex Abea talking about the Rand Corporation. So uh, details on that available at corporatereport.com slash shop if you want to be specific. But uh, that is just, again, one example of the types of fine grain analysis that we can do here. But as I say, this is part of a bigger, bigger picture. And obviously, one of the things that I have been attempting to do at the Corbett Report since episode one is to also take a look at the bigger picture and to try to be somewhat philosophical, but to try to connect those pieces and see how they relate together. Why is it that this system is being created? How is it being created? And what effect is it having on on all of us? And, and I think this is 
Again, it's a mind-bogglingly large question, and one that I've attempted to approach from multiple different angles over the years, so I don't think I can choose just one that will reflect all of those different ideas or approaches, but let's just pick one out of the bag, because we must eventually. And we can turn to an eye-opener report that I created a couple of years ago now, uh, called Rings Within Rings, which was an attempt to articulate the ways in which secret societies function uh, as communities of interest to group different parts of the oligarchical would-be ruling class together in the quest for the attainment of this consolidation of oligarchical power. And again, if that sounds all very philosophical, it's because it is. But luckily, it's not quite as confusing as that might make it sound. It can be reduced to some not simple, but easily graspable terms that can be then plumbed to their depths. So let's just take a short look at one example of this uh, this examination, again from the eye-opener report called Rings Within Rings, where we talk about Carol Quigley's formulation of, or, or exposition, of how Cecil Rhodes created his roundtable uh, society, and the implications of how that roundtable society was constructed on how the oligarchy functions in general. What one develops through an exploration of Quigley's writings is not some easily parodied amorphous conspiracy of them and some vaguely defined Illuminati that may or may not have anything to do with the Bavarian order of the Illuminati founded by Adam Weishaupt in 1776, but an interlocking series of centrally controlled organizations of interest populated mostly by those on the outer circle who have no idea what agenda those on the inner circle are aiming at. In this view, the conspiracy is not monolithic, but made up of groupings of individuals united by a common ideology, sometimes with differing views of how to achieve their goals. In 2009, I had the chance to talk to G. Edward Griffin about what he believes to be the uniting ideology behind these various groups. The underlying um, engine for almost all of the problems that concern us today is an ideology of all things. It's not even people. Oh, yes, there are people with names and they hold positions and all of that, but they're always changing. Those people are replaced by other people. And if you look at the common thread between them, it's that they share a common ideology. They all think the same. And so it really makes no difference who is in power or who holds that particular position. Uh, nothing really changes. We've noticed as we go from one decade to the next, from one political party to the next, from one regime to the next, uh, people die, new ones come up. Nothing changes. The trend just continues. And it's because all of those people in the chain of command have shared an ideology. Well, what is the ideology? It's called collectivism. It's a strange word to the ear for many people today, but as I was doing my research a little while ago, I, I discovered that the word collectivism was quite commonly used and well understood uh, about a century ago. You'll find it a lot in the political writings of, uh, of uh, our forefathers and the historians of the time. And when you start in analyzing it, we realize that Today's world and yesterday's world hasn't really changed that much except words. The underlying struggle is between two ideologies, two political uh, views. One is collectivism and the other one is individualism. And there again is a word that um, hasn't been very well used of late, but it's very 
It's very common in the older literature. But these words I'm attempting to revive and cause people to understand the differences between collectivism and individualism. And although we don't have the time for this uh, brief session to go into it all, I'll just give you an, an overview. Collectivism is the concept of great big government, of control from the top down, all power at the top, and, and the people at the bottom being but mere little uh, serfs and, and servants of, of the larger group, the society, the state, the government. Uh, individualism is the uh, other way around, is tip the pyramid upside down, that uh, you know the foundation of the whole society is the individual, and the purpose of society is to, is to protect the rights of the individual and uh, to guard the individual even against the group if necessary. And uh, so there are two entirely different philosophies. The underlying philosophy of collectivism is that the group is more important than the individual and that the individual must be sacrificed if necessary for the greater good of the greater number. Now that video is, of course, available for free viewing online, so I hope you will follow the link in the show notes to watch the rest of that video, and in fact the entire video series that it's contained in, a video series on uh, secret societies and what they are and how they function that I did back uh, a couple of years ago, as I say now for the, uh, the eye-opener report. But I hope that that gives a sense. Uh, the, I mean, again, these are just random samples almost, not representative samples in any real sense, but but samples that show both the bigger, bigger picture that I've been attempting to articulate for several years now, and also the, like with the Alex Abea interview, the fine-grained individual details of different parts of this bigger picture. And I think, again, both perspectives are important, but perhaps there's another aspect that we have to consider here. It's not just the bigger picture and the fine details. It's also the way in which this information is related. Sometimes, as the previous reports would obviously uh, represent, I take a very dry analytical approach uh, that looks very much at the, the facts and how they connect together and what we can say about that. And I think sometimes that is valuable and the most valuable way of approaching some of these issues, but I don't think it's the only way, and it's certainly not reflective of who I am as a human being. I am not a 100% rational robot. I am also a human being with emotions and with a sense of humor, and yes, I would hope that anyone who's been listening to the Corbett Report for a number of years now, or even since the beginning, if you've made it that far, will have recognized that I do have a sense of humor, a very dry and very sarcastic sense of humor, but a sense of humor that I hope does show through in some of the work, perhaps most notably in my most popular piece of media by far, by a country mile, 9-11, A Conspiracy Theory, my five-minute parody of the official 9-11 story. Actually, it's not so much a parody so much as a retelling, but it is self-parodying, as I've often said. What they expect us to believe with the 9-11 propaganda is so ridiculous that it is actually laughable. And I think it is actually important for us to recognize that, to, to laugh at it, to, uh, to engage in those uh, reactions, and obviously that's touched a chord with many people online, and I'm glad it has done so. Uh, th as I say, I do have a sense of humor, and that's not only reflected in the work that I do, not only the 9-11 video, but other videos that I've done with a sarcastic, humorous edge, but also in some of the pieces of uh, media that I consume that I have appreciated over the years, that, I, that the humorous touch has not been lost on me. For example, a very humorous little presentation given by Michael Parenti on 
conspiracy theorizing and the JFK assassination, which I highlighted back in episode 50 of the podcast, again back in 2008, in which uh, we examined the other C-word, conspiracy theory, and uh, we took a moment to appreciate the Again, the absurdity of another one of the official establishment propaganda pieces. Damage control. You know, back in 1978, the House Select Committee reported, in fact, after an investigation, that there was more than one assassin shooting Kennedy. And there, therefore, was a conspiracy. In response, the Washington Post immediately editorialized in 1978, quote, could it have been some other malcontent who Mr. Oswald met casually? It gets better. It gets better. With Could not as many as three or four societal outcasts with no ties to any one organization have developed in some spontaneous way a common determination to express their alienation in the killing of President Kennedy. It is possible that two persons acting independently attempted to shoot the president at the very same time. All you can do is laugh. I mean, you should laugh at that. It is ridiculous, and that is a natural human reaction to that, and one that I think is good to engage with. It is good to show ridiculous propaganda for what it is, and laughter is a good way of doing that. Another aspect of the human spirit, the human soul, the human whatever you want to call it that we can engage in, engage with through the presentation of this media is also, of course, the other types of emotions and responses that we have as human beings. The ones that uh, play on our dramatic sensibilities. And there are times in which I take a more imaginative approach to some of this information. And perhaps most notably in recent months, the How to Herd Your Tax Cattle edition of this podcast that was quite popular with a lot of listeners, and I'm glad it was so, in which I imagined myself as a an advisor in the shadow government advising one of the presidential puppets how the country is really run. And for those of you who did enjoy that episode of the podcast, let me just give a tantalizing little hint that you will see a follow-up to that in the near future, but uh, I'll just leave it at that. But as I say, these imaginative approaches or different takes on things can sometimes be, I I think, some of the most interesting pieces of media that I've produced, not only How to Herd Your Tax Cattle, but also back in episode 243 of the podcast, where I created a message in a bottle. This is a message to the future. A digital message in a bottle cast out on the binary waves of ones and zeros out into that digital eternity on the other side of which I know not what lies there. I know not who is looking at this right now or listening to my voice. But if you are, I guess it means that we've lost, those of us who are concerned about freedom. I wonder if you even know what that word means. I mean, truly means. Not what you've been taught that it means, if you've been taught anything of the sort. But what it truly means to be a free, independent human being. I don't have a digital crystal ball. I can't see into the future, and I don't know anything about 
your time, your place, who you are, where you come from. But the writing is on the wall for us in our day and age. And God knows there's been enough templates of the dystopian future for us to at least contemplate the broad outlines of the time that you're living in. In our day and age, the templates would be known and talked about by many, if not well understood by any. We talk of 1984, of George Orwell, or of Aldous Huxley in Brave New World, the boots stamping on the human face forever, or amusing ourselves to death with our version of Soma. But I wonder how close to the mark those visions really come. And I wonder if that's what I'm really concerned about after all. That is the intriguing, I hope, opening to episode 243 of this podcast, Message to the Future. And for those who are wondering, yes, I hope that there will be a follow-up to that particular edition of the podcast in the future as well. But I will leave it there for now. And again, there are many different ways to approach the articulation of this picture of this New World Order system, the bigger picture, the fine details, laughing at in the face of these tyrants, and, uh, and also playing in, imaginatively in, in conveying some of this information. Uh, again, there are many different approaches to this, and I think that they all are hopefully complementary, and some people might enjoy some more than others. That's fine. I Again, everyone has their own tastes. And that's all to the good, and I can do nothing other than be a reflection of who I am and my personality and my my uh, my mentality. So that's that is the Corbett Report, and it, it it can't be anything more or less. And I would never, again, make be hubristic enough to say that I have the complete understanding of every intricate working part and the system as a whole. No one does. Not me, not you, not any individual out there. I think we have to piece this together from many sources, and I hope the Corbett Report can be one of those sources that you can use to supplement your overall understanding of this bigger picture. But, and this is the big but of today's episode, we arrive at the point where we have to start thinking about where are we going from here, and why are we doing what we're doing? What direction do we want to take things in? And I can't answer that for you, I can only answer that for me and the media that I'm creating. So, more specifically, why do I do what I do? This is an interesting question, because it's a question that I have answered in the past, multiple times, I would say. Uh, And there are many different places where you can find interviews with me where I talk about the way that I came to start the Corbett Report and the reasons that that motivated me to do so. And uh, again, I've done podcast episode, uh, Who is James Corbett? Talking about who I am. I've I've talked about this in numerous interviews. And perhaps most notably, most recently, I talked about my experience of starting the Corbett Report at TEDx Groningen back in uh, November of last year. Hi, everyone. (laughs) I'm sure everybody here is familiar with that famous quotation, the pen is mightier than the sword. But did you know that the first, the earliest known version of that phrase, the word is mightier than the sword, dates back to the 7th century BC? For thousands of years, humans have understood that it is ideas worth spreading that change the world, not swords or guns or bombs. This is the story of how I came to discover one such idea worth spreading, and that story starts in a most unlikely place. 
here. <laughs> a rundown old apartment building in rural Japan. I moved into this building in 2006. My apartment was the one on the bottom, second from the right, the one with the bamboo blinds. It's not exactly the Hilton, but it was home for me. And the apartment came with an added bonus, a free internet connection. And that little bit of fiber optic cable changed my life. It didn't take much YouTube watching or archive.org browsing to realize that I could watch anything I wanted at any time. I could listen to any radio broadcast from any radio station that broadcasted online. I could read any newspaper that had a website. The world was literally at my fingertips. And so I watched The Century of the Self, and I discovered how Edward Bernays broke the taboo on women smoking for the American Tobacco Company. I logged onto the National Security Archive of the George Washington University and downloaded the declassified Operation Northwoods documents detailing how the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff planned to commit terror attacks in Washington, D.C. and blame them on the Cubans in order to justify an invasion of that country. I listened to lectures by G. Edward Griffin about the founding of the Federal Reserve in a secret meeting on Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia in 1910. In short, my mind was blown. Here I was discovering all this crazy, incredible information from primary source documents and original interviews with important people. But there was a problem. Why had I never heard this before? Why had I never read about any of this in the newspaper or heard it on talk radio or seen it on TV? So there I was in my apartment in rural Japan, looking at what I could read in the newspaper and what I could find online, and I was outraged. Chances are you're outraged too. Poll after poll in recent years has shown trust in television and newspaper dropping as internet usage increases. People are discovering what they don't know. But here's the question. What do we do about this? And here's the answer. We use the internet to supplant the media. I hope you will go and watch the rest of that presentation if you have not yet done so. But that is, I think, the simplest way that I can put the, the story of how I came to start this website and what motivated me to do so. And I hope that that, that idea, that narrative, is makes sense to other people out there. It's what I once articulated as the narrative of outrage and conviction, the outrage that, uh, that we experience in learning pieces of the puzzle that have been deliberately withheld from us, and the conviction that we must have that we can do something about this. And uh, those I, I, I articulated that back in the first ever episode of Corbett Report Radio, my short-lived radio broadcast on Republic Broadcasting that ran from 2011 to 2012. In the first ever episode of Corbett Report Radio, I talked about outrage and conviction and my story of how I came to start the website and why I started it. And interestingly, in the last episode of Corbett Report Radio, episode 277, at the end of 2012, I somewhat clarified, amended, supplemented that vision of outrage and conviction with another piece of the puzzle that is important for us to understand, that this, this motivation has to not come from a place of hatred, as one might think, if we are motivated by outrage, then we're just 
acting in anger and just reacting. It has to come from a place of, of love. It has to be something deeper that is motivating us to create something new rather than simply to react to the situation we've been placed in. And that is the emphasis that I think I want to start making more explicit as we move from here past episode 300 as as I continue out into the foreseeable future with CorbettReport.com. This is something that I attempted to articulate, for example, in my New Year's resolution message, and which I've been talking about a little bit recently in the podcast. And we've talked about this in, uh, with Sibel Edmonds the other day in a conversation that we had, and, and things of this nature, where we're talking about what it is that we're doing here, what it is that I'm doing here, what it is that you're hopefully investing your time in, and why it is we're doing this. Again, it's not just about the outrage and conviction. It has to be about the creation of something new, something worthwhile, the attainment of something. And that's why I have prided myself on the fact that the Corbett Report has tended to focus more uh, more on solutions, on things that people can actually do, than on a lot of uh, the fear porn that can just attract people into this uh, this web, this, this alternate ma- matrix of the alternate media. And uh, I, I think you all know of the type of fear porn that I'm talking about that can certainly grab people's attention, but does not leave them any stronger for it. So I have, for example, just as one example, I had a, a series on the podcast in the past called Lessons in Resistance, where we looked at various different ways that people can resist the system. I've also got, I think, the the continuing series on solutions, which I hope is a valuable resource for people out there. Please type in the word solutions into the search bar on CorbettReport.com and start exploring the archives where we talk about all manner of solutions that you can start implementing yourself from our recent episode on guerrilla gardening to nullification, making your own media, boycotts and boycotts and surveillance, peaceful parenting, pirate internet, monetary reform, 3D printing, complementary currencies, open source, everything. We've done a lot of work on that in the past, but as much as we have done in that vein, I want to concentrate even more on solutions in in the foreseeable future, in the coming year. Really, the focus should be on what we can actually do about the system if we are outraged and have the conviction that we can do something. The question, of course, is, well, what can we do? How do we do it? And let's motivate ourselves to do it, to actually make a change in this world, because I really do believe that to be possible. So, again, the Corbett Report is going to be steering more and more towards that solution focus. That does not mean that we turn away from that picture of the new world order that's coming into view and our examination of it, because in order to understand the world we're living in, as Richard Grove of Tragedy and Hope often says, we need an accurate map of that terrain, and we can't construct that map without an understanding of that system. So, yes, we will continue to do that, and in, I hope, more and more in-depth ways, like, for example, our recent podcast episode on China and the New World Order, which was one of the most comprehensive reports I have ever put together. Uh, Months of research in particular for that particular podcast, but years of research in general to be able to articulate and understand the various pieces in that podcast. I think that's a model for how we can continue with those types of 
analyses in the future, but also not just focusing on the picture of that New World Order system, but also turning our heads, looking at our own canvas, what we are actually painting, what we want to bring into reality. And I think that must also be a very important focus of this work going forward. So I hope you will join me on this. And Yes, today's podcast was a bit self-indulgent and philosophical. I hope you have indulged me in this, because I think it is, again, important to to constantly reassess what it is we're doing and why we're doing it, and to try to come to a more nuanced understanding of that with each iteration. And once again, let me just say that I absolutely could never have imagined that the Corbett Report would become what it has become when I started out as that humble, stuttering, false uh, false voice kind of amateur back seven and a half years ago. I'm still an amateur in many respects, but I think you will agree I've improved in many respects as well, and I will continue to improve, I hope. That is the point. We all have to learn and grow. And I again, couldn't have imagined that the Corbett Report would become what it is, or that I would be doing this as my full-time endeavor, or that that would be enabled by the support of all the people out there. Not only monetary support, of course, that is important, and I do deeply appreciate every single member of the Corbett Report community and the people who buy the DVDs that make this Corbett Report podcast possible, but also spreading the word, spreading the information, just talking about this information with other people, that is part of the solution in and of itself, is to start this conversation, to start the dialogue, and to start affecting the change in consciousness that I think is the real revolution, as I've talked about in the past. And as I say, you can support this work by becoming a Corporate Report member and joining this conversation, leaving your comments in the comments section of the website. Also, of course, by buying things like the new Data DVD Volume 4 from 2011. Once again, every single podcast episode, interview, article, and video posted on CorbettReport.com in 2011. A veritable treasure trove of information available on just two data DVDs, and they come as a set. You can, again, find all the details at corbettreport.com shop. I hope you'll take a look at it. Once again, I'm James Corbett of corbettreport.com, thanking you for joining me for this 300th edition of the Corbett Report podcast and inviting you to join me again next week. The Corbett Report is brought to you by you. Your support makes The Corbett Report possible. Sign up for the subscriber newsletter or purchase a DVD at corbettreport.com support.